You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. So here at Cross and Crown, we believe that the Bible is God's word to us. When we read the Bible, we are hearing God speak. Today's Bible reading will be taking place in two parts. And so the first reading is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, from the New International Version. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds in the sky, and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has a breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The second reading, from the book of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. And this is the message version. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Um, I spent a lot of time thinking about (laughs) a structured framework in answering this question this morning. Why is God against my sexual fulfillment? And by Friday night, I'd realized that I have a lot of logical answers to it, but it didn't feel right because I didn't put me in the question. As a follower of Jesus, who is single and believes that God's plan for sex is between a man and a woman in a context of a marriage, I willingly live a celibate life. That is, I I don't have sex. Why is God, who is against, or perhaps we could say limiting, of my sexual fulfillment? And that left me in a bit of a lurch. When we ask, why is God against my sexual fulfillment? I don't think we're coming at it purely to understand why. We could be, we could be asking the question, why? But I think there are deeper questions underneath that. Mary Oliver's poem, How Do I Love? 
How do I love you? Oh, this way and that way. Oh, happily. Perhaps I may elaborate by demonstration, like this and like this, and no more words now. Sex is a beautiful thing and wonderful as well. It makes us, helps us be intimate with someone. I want to be able to express my sexuality and sexual desires. I want to communicate, like what Mary Oliver says, something more than words, with no more words. When we ask, why is sex, why is God against my sexual fulfillment? I think the deeper questions that we're asking is, why is God prohibiting a wonderful good thing in my life? Why is God prohibiting something good in my life? And then subsequently, if God does that, is God good? Is God loving? Is God worth following? If God limits something good in my life, is he still good? Is he still loving? Is he still worth following? I think those are the real questions that we're facing. And before I start, sex is a beautiful thing, but at the same time, it is equally ugly. This talk might bring feelings of love and rejection, desirability or dissatisfaction, whether you are single or not. Sometimes all these feelings can happen at the same time. So as I head into this talk, I want to head into it with gentleness, with the same gentleness that God does. And I want this space to be safe. So like what, um, I've forgotten your name already, Jevon's, Jevon. (laughs) (laughs) Not Kevin. All right. As Jevon said at the start, if, if if you feel at any time you need to take a breather, please don't hesitate to just step out uh, to the back or into the foyer, Um, and we shouldn't be judging anyone who's doing that. And if something that I've said or someone says is triggering of past memories or negative emotions, I want to really encourage you to speak to someone you trust or people you trust, a friend, a loved one, your pastor, a counsellor, and even God. I'm going to pray now, and I'm going to simply pray that God would help me speak clearly and gently, and that we might listen well. If you're comfortable, let's pray. God in heaven, help me to speak clearly and gently on this topic that is sometimes uncomfortable and scary for us. Lord, also help us all to have listening ears that we may hear and discern well. Amen. In 2018, Larry Lassar was convicted of sexually abusing over 500 girls and women during his time as the National Medical Coordinator of the USA Gymnastics He used his position and power to sexually 
abused girls and women in medical sessions. He was subsequently sentenced to $380 million of settlement for the abused survivors and convicted of 100 years of jail time. The convicting judge said, I just signed your death warrant. As humans, we don't believe hands down that all humans are free in every context to fulfill every sexual desire, drive, or attraction. If Larry Nassar was free to fulfill his sexual desires on girls and women under his care, he wouldn't be in jail or convicted. If uh, Malka Leifer, the ex-principal of a school here in Melbourne, wouldn't be extradited back to Australia and put on trial for the last six weeks for 27 charges of rape and sexual activity with students. She wouldn't have been extradited if she was free to allegedly do those things. The Royal Commission to investigate... Would, would, the Royal Commission wouldn't investigate child sex abuse in religious institutions if people who belonged to those institutions were free to have their sexual desires fulfilled in doing those horrible, abusive things. We don't, as a society, and I think personally, believe that everyone is free to have sexual fulfillment at the expense of another person's sexual defilement. Is God loving or good if he is against anyone's sexual fulfillment? Well, yes, depending on what sexual fulfillment we're talking about. Because if we're talking about sexual fulfillment that strips the freedom, the humanity, the dignity of another person, then I would want an all-powerful, all-knowing God to be against that. If we're talking about sexual fulfillment that enslaves another person, mistreats them, abuses them, I would want my God to be against that. And if I were ever to desire to strip the freedom, humanity, dignity of another person, I would want my God to lovingly limit me and guide me to prevent that from happening. Because I don't ever want to be on the other side to be sexually defiled for the sake of someone else's sexual fulfillment. I want a God who stands up for the weak and vulnerable and protects against the misuse and the abuse that occurs. A God who says, as in the words of the prophet Jeremiah, do what is just and right. Rescue from the hands of the oppressor the one who has been robbed. Perhaps we could say robbed in their sexual lives. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. 
In the Greco-Roman world, sex could be summed up by the 4th century um, past, 4th century Athenian statesman Demosthenes, Demosthenes, who said that mistresses we keep for our pleasure, concubines for our day-to-day physical well-being, and wives to bear us legitimate children. Now, in the first century landscape, when Jesus was around, it didn't matter who you had sex with, male, female, slave, as long as you're a free, as long as you're a free-born male citizen, and as long as you were not the submissive, passive receiver of sex. Sex in the first century belonged to the powerful. Sex was an act of power. Those who had more power had more choice of sex, and those who didn't could be powerless to the sexual whims of those who do have power. In reflection of the sexual revolution, feminist Oxford philosopher writes, Amia, she writes that what is remarkable about the sexual revolution is how much was left unchanged. Women who say no still really mean yes, and women who say yes are still sluts. Black and brown men are still rapists, and the rape of black and brown women still don't count, still doesn't count. Girls are still asking for it. Boys still must learn to give it. Whom exactly did the sexual revolution set free? We have never yet been free. And it's into this landscape that the surprising words of the Apostle Paul speaks. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew or Gentile, neither slave or free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In this first century, and perhaps in this current century, Paul says to the followers of Jesus, you're all children of God. You are all equal in dignity. He forces into the powers of structures of abuse and misuse by free men and shows them that, shows everyone, that women, slaves, children have equal dignity. But he doesn't stop there. The Apostle Paul continues to shape Christian community when he tells um, the church in Ephesus, submit to one another out of reference for Christ. Mutual submission is so countercultural for a first century landscape where slaves, women, and children submitted to free-born men. But he goes even further. Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. When we read this, 
with our 21st century eyes, we might stumble a little bit with that first sentence and forget the second sentence. How do men love their wives? By following Jesus' example of dying for the church in the most humiliating way. Husbands, your wife is not your property. They are not offspring-making machines. They're not bodies to cessate your lusts. Your wife is equally a child of God. Love your wife in a self-giving, sacrificial, other-person way. I want to follow a God who limits sex as displays of power and recognises the equal dignity of women, children and slaves. I want to follow Jesus, the Son of God, who engages with so many vulnerable people, women and children, in gentle, uncompromising ways. Jesus, who chatted with the Samaritan woman who was othered by the community. Jesus, who didn't make any advances when a vulnerable woman was overcome with emotions and wept at his feet. Jesus, who had deep friendships with Mary and Martha. Jesus, who reached out to the woman who was about to get stoned for being caught committing adultery. This is the Jesus I want to follow. And if by following him, I am to limit my sexual fulfillment to respect, protect, and to love others, to live in a community where there's mutual recognition of worth, value, love, sacrifice, where I will be safe, where others will be safe, where I won't be misused or just seen as sexual conquest or property. That's the Jesus I want to follow. Just before the court considered sentencing Nassar, one of his victims, Rachel Den Hollander, gave the final address, which was around 30 minutes long. In that address, she addresses the court to consider applying the greatest available sentence, which was uh, life imprisonment, because she says, she asks, how much is a little girl worth? How much is a young woman worth, she continues. How much priority should be placed on communicating that the fullest weight of the law will be used to protect another innocent child from the soul-shattering devastation that sexual assault brings. I submit to you, she says to the court, that these children are worth everything, worth every protection the law can offer, worth the maximum sentence. I think God is loving and good in limiting sexual fulfillment because he recognises that every single person is worth everything. Because humans, he declares, are made in the image of God. 
We are made to reflect God, regardless of our ability or disability, regardless of our sexuality or our gender experiences, regardless of our past. We are made in the image of God. We reflect God. We are we have inherent dignity, value, and worth. No person should be defiled at the, at the expense of another person's fulfillment. It is good that God is against some forms of sexual fulfillment for those who have been abused and hurt so that he can hold the people who are abusing and hurting to a standard. Otherwise, abusive behavior won't be called abusive. Oppressive behavior wouldn't be called oppression. It is loving that God recognizes that the boundaries of sexual fulfillment, because by doing that, he can truly see those who have been hurt, the victims, the survivors, the abused, and he can truly see them, recognize them, comfort them, and love them. And it's loving and good that God recognizes the boundaries of sexual fulfillment so that he can bring true justice to heinous, irresponsible, and abusive sexual behavior. It's equally loving and good that God brings forgiveness, mercy, potential reconciliation to those who are irresponsible and abusive if they are remorseful. That's the beauty of God, the God that I follow. Without limitations, there is no love or goodness. Without limitations, God can't look at a person being created and say it is very good. And equally, it's good that God limits sexual fulfillment because no one owes anyone their body, their attraction, or th their desire. Again, Amiya uh, Sirivasan, um, feminist philosopher at Oxford, says, no one is under any obligation to have sex with anyone else because sex is not a human right. Sex is not my right. Sex is nobody's right because sex is not owed to anyone. I might desire someone. I might desire their body. I might desire their attraction. I might want someone to equally desire me, but their desires are not my right. We're not owed those things. They are free to give those things to me, but I don't. Owe, they're not owed to me. It's not a matter of fairness whether someone gets sex while another person isn't getting any because it's not a matter of fairness whether or not someone is attracted to me, wants me, or desires me. Desire, love, and sex is freely given and shared mutually. When it becomes a right, freedom disappears. I might not be someone's type, or I might not be sexually attracted to them, but I can't control their attraction. I might be, it might be prejudice that someone finds Southeast Asians less attractive than European bodies, but that's not my issue. 
no matter how shallow or deep someone else's desire and love might be, for their desire and love to be true, it is theirs to give, not mine to take or owed to me. Their true desire, love, and their bodies are not commodities to be bought, sold, or traded. But in our capitalist landscape, bodies, sex, digital or physical, have become a commodity. Professor Gordon Menzies of UTS writes, human bodies become goods in the marketplace and where survival of the sexiest promotes injustice and discrimination. We want to trade our bodies and sacrifice our worth on the altar of pleasure. There is a weight, I think, on all our shoulders at times, shown in movies and TVs and magazines and books, of needing to have sex, of performing well in sex. British writer Olivia Fane mourns the fact that I have been abused not by another without permission, not by a film producer or a priest. Rather, I've been abused by the dominant ideology of the day that sex is important and profound and you are obliged to join in. But as a Christian, I'm made by God. My body has a greater worth than just being a pleasure machine for myself and for other people. My body is not just a piece of aesthetic. God gives my body divine dignity. In the Apostle Paul, he writes that my body is a temple for the Holy Spirit, not a hollow temple that I sculpt for pleasure or apps, but a holy temple that I honour God with. God gives a purpose to my body that is bigger than temporary, fleeting acts of pleasure. It, it, It has worth regardless of whether I am desired, regardless of my body type or shape, whether I have worth, whether or not I am having sex had sex, have been abused or otherwise. I am worthy regardless of whether or not I can woo someone, whether or not someone returns my offer for love. I have worth because God inherently gives me worth. But it still doesn't answer the nagging questions. I've given you a framework of why limiting sexual fulfillment is good, but why is limiting my good good for me? Many Christians, including myself, believe that following Jesus in sexuality means that sexual expression is between a man and a woman in lifelong marriage. We've read from Genesis 1 and 2, God shows that Christian marriage And sexual relationships is between a man and a woman. And we also see that in Jesus in Mark 10, where Jesus affirms that this is still the way in which he sees 
marriage. And for followers of Jesus, God the creator, Jesus the one who saves, both say the same thing. To follow God, there is a limit of sexual expression and fulfillment that is within the confines of lifelong marriage between a man and a woman. Where does that leave me, an unmarried single Christian person who has, on the one hand, sexual desires, but in following Jesus, decide not to express or fulfill them? Someone once asked, why can't God just zap away Zap people with sexuality on their wedding day when he can find when they can finally allow them to use it. Why give them sexual feelings that they have to feel guilty about until the day they get married and are finally allowed to experience what our sexuality is there for? Why is God following God's plan for sexuality and subsequently my lack of sex good and loving for me? And what about Christians who experience diverse patterns of sexual attraction? Attraction to the same sex. Christians longing for companionship and partnership and following Jesus means limiting sexual expression. Is it still worth following God if the space of love is longed but lost, never to be? never to be fulfilled. A dear friend of mine wrote this poem a few days ago. It wasn't what I wanted that got me into trouble. It was not knowing how to want it. Forgetting who or what or that I desire, thinking that thinking could win in the end. Tuning out the ache, turning down the longing. That's how this all began. I swelled this question around in my head yesterday. I don't want to abuse anyone. I want to find meaningful, mutual love and sexual fulfillment. Is it worth following God if he limits this? My personal sexual fulfillment. And the question really is, how is God loving and good if he limits a good and beautiful thing in my life, right? We can swap out sexual fulfillment with any other thing that is good. Why is God still loving and good if he limits something that is good? Sex is a beautiful, wonderful thing. It makes us intimate, helps us be intimate with another person. It allows us to communicate and connect with more than words. It is self-giving, not only in vulnerability, but because it is sacrificial. Sex has the potential to procreate. Two people have the potential to bring another life into the world and look beyond each other. That's sacrificial. Sex is a beautiful thing, but I think we also have to recognize sex is a temporary thing as well. Intimacy is temporary. You can't stay in bed with your lover for your whole life. You still have to eat and drink and go out and work. The honeymoon period wears off. And sex, that question, sex is also a privileged thing. Not everyone ought to have sex. Not everyone do have sex or choose to have sex. Or not everyone can 
have sex. For example, we're very cautious about how we share and teach children and other vulnerable people about sex. doesn't mean they're not living a fulfilling life. doesn't mean they're not human. People who experience asexuality may not desire to have sex. doesn't make them less human. doesn't mean they're not living a fulfilling life. People who might not be able to have sex because of a disability, because of an inter- intersex condition, because of spinal cord injuries, or when we get older, when our sexual desires decrease and we might not want to have sex, sex is a privileged, and privileged not in the better privileged, but privileged in that for some it is only a certain time period a certain state of life that occurs. We don't have sex every second of the day. We can't. Sex is one room that allows moments of a type of intimacy to happen, but there are many other rooms in our lives that open up other types of deep intimacy that we need to tend to and enjoy When sex becomes everything, life becomes nothing. But what if, in the Christian world, sex means more? What if sexual fulfillment has a greater purpose? What if the room that is sex, that shows us close, personal, vulnerable intimacy, is only a foyer for another room. What if marriage and subsequently sex in a Christian framework points towards something greater? The Bible tells us that sex and marriage is a temporary experience that points us to an eternal experience. God being with his people, Jesus being with us. All throughout the Bible, I think there's Hosea uses the image of God saying, in that day when he comes back, when he's with us, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and I will betroth you to me forever. Next slide. The Lord delights in you, his people, And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And Paul says, I promised you, the Corinthian church, and all of us, to one husband, to Jesus, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. The intimacy, the relationship, the nature of sex and marriage points us is a shadow, is a glimpse of a greater reality, bigger than we can imagine. It's a beautiful, wonderful, loving thing when God gazes at us and wants us to be with him, wants us to draw close to him. God of the universe chooses us regardless of whether or not we are desirable or attractive. 
knits the fractures of my pain and mistakes into real beauty. I want to follow that God. Sexual and desire and fulfillment temporarily points towards the reality of divine desire for us. A relationship that tugs at us, that is filled with connection and communication, with words and more than words, a life-giving, vulnerable, sacrificial relationship. What if by limiting sexual fulfillment and placing it within an order, God uses that order to show us what it means for him to love us and for us to love him. That just as a husband and life, just as a husband and wife have sexual fidelity in lifelong marriage, God is eternally faithful to his people in a deep, union, that he will never let us go, that the shape of sex shows us the good news of God who sees us as we truly are, chooses us, and wants us. And what if that for those of us who are single and follow Jesus, and who choose to limit our sexual fulfillment, what if our patterns of faithfulness show us the pattern that Jesus is enough? That we will wait for what sexual fulfillment is, what it points to in eternity. Eternal, real, purposeful, intimate presence with our loving God, good God, and with our friends and family and brothers and sisters. Perhaps then, by seeing this purpose, it unshackles us to want to throw ourselves, our bodies, our aesthetics, to throw ourselves in trying to constantly scratch the itch that will never be satisfied. Perhaps by seeing this purpose, it releases us from the religion of pleasure and the gods of gains and sets us to live a life of free, good love. Why don't we pray? Jesus says, are you tired? Are you worn out? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Amen.